Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at my great guests and hear about their experiences in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we are taking a look at film editing. There is a freedom to be able to cut the coverage. I mean, there's a freedom to be able to say, I can cut to the other side, I can cheat a line over somebody's back. I would work on his scenes and he would work on, on my scenes. It's kind of a different way of editing. The interesting thing about, about Claudia and I is that one of us is the yin, one, one is the yang. Like, we are opposites. While the work of directors, cinematographers, and writers might contain cinema's most visible style, editors have a very different goal for their work, to be invisible. Most audience members are so drawn into storytelling that well, we don't even realize how much work goes into cutting, to make action pop, shape performances, and create emotion. But show even the least trained eye a bad cut, they'll notice. For our look at the invisible but crucial art of editing, we're exploring two different Q&As. Douglas Price, the Oscar-nominated editor of Babel, Spring Breakers, and Birdman, and the editing team of Claudia Costello and Michael P. Schauber, who worked together on Creed, Fruitvale Station, and most recently, Black Panther. I've been fighting my whole life. Every punch I ever thrown has been on my own. Nobody showed me how to do this. You are Apollo Creed's son. I'm afraid of taking on the name and losing. You're scared to death that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. You're Birdman. Ah! You are a god. All three editors initially honed their craft in film school. In Douglas Christ's case, he needed this education to figure out his true calling in the entertainment industry. I would say, you know, when I went to film school, I didn't know I was going to end up in editing, and I uh, initially thought I wanted to do photography or something else like that. But when I got out of here and started interning, I ended up in a cutting room, and I found out that's where I belonged, and uh, I was doing film. Um, editors that I you know, I admire. I don't know a lot about film history of great editors. I mean, you could certainly say people like um, Walter Murch or, or, or um, who directed Sound of Music? Uh, Bob Weiss. He was, he directed, you know, he edited Citizen Kane. He started out as an editor. So, you know, I would say Jerry Greenberg, who uh, cut French Connection. You know, Michael Kahn's a great editor. I, I think Dylan Tinchner is one of the better editors around. I think I've worked with the, one of the greatest editors that exists right now, Stephen Marioni. And I think Stephen is probably the biggest influence on me uh, completely because he's the one who pushed me to start cutting. And even from our very first film together, he would say, can you, can you cut this scene for me or can you do this scene? And, you know, and working on traffic, he would give me a lot of scenes to cut and would say, can you cut this? Can you do, oh, you want to cut this or you want to do this? Or, and the more we worked together, like even on 21 Grams, he would basically say, can you get the last half of the movie edited? Because he would be so busy polishing the part he's working on, he said, can you just get that together? I sometimes struggle through an assembly because in some respects, I don't want to change it after I've done it. So I struggle through the assembly to get it the way I want it to begin with. But I find recutting actually easy to some extent because it's like, you know, then we play with it, so. Meanwhile, Claudia and Michael's time in film school introduced them to the work of fellow student Ryan Coogler, the man who'd eventually direct the Black Panther to his billion-dollar reign. 
you know, I, I was like most uh, film students, you, you think directing is it. Like you want to be a director, you want to be that Scorsese, you want to be that Spielberg. And uh, so I went and I, and I took a directing class and there's this guy making these two or three minute short films that were just incredible, that were making me feel something, that were changing my mind about things. And, you know, I, I, I'm the guy that'll sit in the back, I'll take everything in from there. But there was something that just compelled me and my gut said, you need to talk to this guy. And I just went up to him and I said, hey man, like I don't know how, but I need to work with you. You're making all the stuff that that I want to make. And he's like, all right. He's like, for sure, man. And that's how I met Ryan Coogler. You know, that, that kicked off, you know, everything. And Ryan had basically already, you couldn't choose before, but he was like, I want Claudia. Like, I don't know if he ever told you this, but he was like, I want Claudia, 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 Claudia. And um, I kind of came in and, and he had already kind of decided on this other guy, but I kind of threw my name in and, and, and he liked the work that I was doing. But I think the thing that really sort of got me that job, which got me this, this career and, and, and kicked it off was, was he was shooting a, uh, a short the next morning on uh, like the day before Thanksgiving, everybody was going home and, and he was like, didn't really know what to do for production design. He's like, Hey man, do you know how to production design? I was like, yeah, yeah, I know how to production design. <laughs> and, um, again, fake it till you make it. So like, you know, that was like 10 o'clock at night. I woke up 4am like, Oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. But that day I, I, I was a production designer, set dresser, uh, first AC gaffer, just, I got lunch, like every, every little thing. And what I learned was, you know, find an opportunity and, 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 you know, meet the people and, and, and follow your gut. But then once you get the opportunity, just work your ass off, you know, <laughs> give, 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 give what you have and just be a good person. Michael and Claudia soon learned that their different approaches, as well as their backgrounds, made them ideal editing partners in crime. The interesting thing about, about Claudia and I is that we are, one of us is the yin and one, one is the yang. Like we are opposites. Like I'm kind of a like intense dude from the Northeast and she's a super laid back <laughs> former professional server from Brazil. So, you know, we kind of attack things a little bit differently. And kind of what she was saying with Fruvale, we came on after they already shot. So the whole movie was already shot and we kind of got to divvy up what it was. And she edits very organically and with feeling, and, and I'm, I'm a little more of like, why is this cut like this? Why is this cut like this? So kind of when we both have our take, they're different enough that, that they work. Um, and we get, we get into our creative discussions and heated, heated debates about, no, this frame or that frame or this shot or that shot or this is what it says about the character and whatever. And Ryan jokes, he says, when she and I actually agree on something, that he knows to use it in the movie, and that's it, and like, <laughs> a discussion. But yeah, a big thing of it too is, is just the passion. Like we, we still have that, because Ryan is such a great human being and, and, and a great filmmaker and makes such compelling stuff, it's our, our first opportunity to say, okay, we're the editors of this, this is gonna be ours, we're, we have ownership over it. And I think that's something you never wanna, wanna lose, you know what I mean? Even if I'm doing a project I'm not super, super thrilled about, or, or, or in love with, you find a reason to love it. You find a reason to love these characters, to care about this, because if you're working such long hours, and, and we never, you know, if Claudia's ever like, I want to cut this scene, like I'm feeling it, like she wakes up, she comes in, like ready to beat somebody up, I'm like, whoa, all right, take the scene and, uh, and do your thing, you know? So, so we, we kind of let each other be who, who we are, you know, in the editing room, and I think that's, diversity can create some, some amazing things that way. So much of editing hinges on the ability to collaborate, both with others in post-production and most importantly with the director, each of whom has their own approach to working with their editors. While cutting Spring Breakers, Douglas Christ found that Harmony Corinne gave him a lot of freedom, possibly too much. You know, I would almost say maybe Harmony's a little too relaxed, because uh, you know, uh, you want that director who will push you I don't like a guy who hovers all the time. You know, the brilliant thing about Harmony is he 
inspires you to do stuff without hovering. He inspires you to try things and do things. And But I'll work with like uh, Nick Jarecki on Arbitrage, and he'll certainly give you your own time, but then you have the hours that he's with you that you're trying this and trying this and trying this and trying this, you know, and it's tiring. Because I think Nick described it to me the first time I never even realized it, how hard your job is sometimes where you have to use the um, mechanical sense of the software and putting things together, but then you got to think creatively at the same time. And when you got a director feeding you creative ideas from behind, my creative end starts to shut off because I have to keep up with the mechanics while he's throwing fast creative ideas at me. And directors who just do that to you, it's, it's hard to keep up and you can't give them the input back. So I think if they give you the breathing room, then you're like, they'll tell you to do something and then they leave and then you say, well, I did what you wanted, but I, now I came up with this idea that I think works even better or this, let's try this. So I think you need a little bit of both. After working with Alejandro Iñárritu on Babel and Birdman, Douglas Christ feels the director is the perfect collaborator supportive of the editor's vision while still pushing them to do their best work. He never wants to compromise. Alejandro's a very particular guy and has his idea how to do it. And he doesn't want to change if he can. I mean, it, you know, he wanted to make a movie that took away the safety of cutting because Alejandro is a, he's a genius editor himself. I mean, he doesn't actually physically ever touch the computer but he knows all the possibilities of an editing room. And that's where he even pushed me. He's like, you know, he knew I could do something with this if I tried, if there was something that we thought we couldn't, you know, I'm like, it's one shot, what am I gonna do with it? You know, no, no, there's a way to make this work. And he wanted to make a film where he wasn't relying on the editing room as much. And he, he said to me when I visit one of my many visits to set, he was so stressed and he was like saying that, he's like, I gotta get it right, I gotta get it right, I can't, fix this later. It's got to be, I got to keep all those ideas in the head. You know, there's the pacing, there's everything. You know, he, he would script edit on set. He would shoot the scene and then shoot it again with less dialogue and shoot it with less dialogue and shoot it again. with. So he'd have, because he knew we couldn't cut the take. So it'd be like, you know, we got we to gotta have our option of what, what, what we're going to do here. When Claudia and Michael collaborated with Ryan Coogler on Fruitvale Station, the director was so involved with the editing process that he all but moved in with them. I went to Brazil. I took it some time. I was like, okay, I'm done with film school. Now I'm gonna rest. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call, like, we need you guys to work with me. There's basically no pay. <laughs> You're gonna be leaving the same house. Um, Mike lived in the in the closet. For I did. A I, said, while. I said for Fruitvale, I uh, I lived in a closet. There was a, <laughs> it was a one bedroom apartment they put us in, and I'm obviously gonna let Claudia have have the room. It was very so nice to have. The only other little enclave was a was a closet. No door. Had a had a curtain, <laughs> and uh, it fit. Uh, an air mattress fit perfectly. Like a twin air mattress just fit perfectly right inside it. That so was it. That was that was. I mean, we were working like seven days a week. Also, if anybody was doing laundry. My light had to be on, <laughs> so that's that's so no naps, no of course doing late night, you know. No laundry after night. ten. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to stop us, but. And we we didn't stop working. It was yeah. like work, 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 and then little sleep, and then work, work, work. It was it was massive. It was a lot of work, but we, we were really passionate about the subject, about what we were doing. So in the end, it, it definitely paid off. There were days where Ryan didn't go home. <laughs> he slept right there in the sofa. <laughs> yeah. And then there was one day that he went to the bathroom. <laughs> 
Let's just say you know when you, you know when you're up for hours and hours and hours, and everybody gets loopy and like you think something's been said or done, and you just start cracking up. That's we're, we're gonna leave it at that. Let's yeah. not, let's let's let's. There uh, are funny yeah. things that happen um, because we're so tired and you yeah. know. Fruitvale Station, starring Michael B. Jordan, focused on the true story of Oscar Grant, an unarmed young man who was shot and killed by a transit police officer in Oakland. Michael and Claudia were proud to put in the time to help share such an important personal story to a mass audience. We have a serious problem with the media in the whole world nowadays, that everything is so polarized, and you have to read so much to kind of start understanding what's going on in the world. And human rights issues is not a priority for the media. And I found in film a very powerful tool to touch those subjects without people turning their face away, you know. I think when you go to the movies, you kind of let the guards down and you're there for how many, you know, an hour and 20 minutes and you open yourself to see what's on the screen. So whatever the filmmaker puts there on the screen, it's really, really, really powerful. So I think it's important for all of us to have the awareness uh, of what we can do, you know, as uh, communicators. Because uh, film is an art form, but it's also a very powerful form of educating people or raising awareness. And that's, I think, what, what we did in Fruit Bay Station. Uh, we had the opportunity to humanize a victim. And a victim, by the eyes of the media, is never humanized. And I think every one of us here have that opportunity to use for the, the best. And, and that's, that's why I, I, I make movies, actually. The biggest pressure the filmmakers felt was when Fruitvale Station premiered at Sundance, not because of the festival's prestige or even its A-list audience, but because of one important family in attendance. Specifically with Fruitvale, so Oscar Grant's family was going to see this movie for the first time at Sundance, so we didn't even care about Sundance. We, we, that was whatever. We were done with the movie and just happy. But his family was a big thing, and the first cut of the movie, Oscar was the nicest human being that you've ever met in your life. And it was good, it worked, but there's something that we weren't, we weren't being true because nobody is the nicest person ever all the time. And there's a scene in the movie where, where he goes to get his job back and they did one take where he threatens his boss, like, you wanna see me outside? I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait till you're done. I gotta feed my daughter, it's, it's amazing. That was the one take that, that he got mad. Everything else he was just kinda like begging. I hired somebody else. For me to bring you back, that means I have to let someone else go. I'm sorry. I like you, man, but I can't do I need do this it. fucking job, bruh. You want me selling dope, bruh? Oscar. You need me outside waiting for you to get done, bruh? You take care of yourself. It was towards the end we went in and, and just cut this, and it, and it changed the movie completely because it, it, it made him a more complex character, and through his interactions with his family and his daughter and his mother and his girlfriend, we all have, and, and having this, like, he can be nice, he can be, he can be all these different things to all these different people, I think that actually brought people closer to him and, and saw, like we could relate to that, we could relate to getting frustrated, we can relate to having our mom say, you better, don't be driving with the, you know, whatever, so there's sort of this adage, I guess, it's, it's when you make things more specific to a character, they become more universal, and so, um, you know, in, in those those specific moments, those specific relationships, and, and the textures of, uh, of those are what 
make people feel and cry for Oscar, you know, which they wouldn't have watching a news report. One of the editor's most time-consuming responsibilities is combing through a production's dailies. That's the daily footage that's captured on set. Depending on the director, this could be an hour of material or so many feet of film it stretches a hundred football fields. Douglas Christ experienced this dichotomy firsthand when working with Oscar winner Steven Soderbergh and Alejandro Iñárritu. They're both very committed and very good filmmakers. I mean, Iñárritu's more, I would say, you, you see his passion on his sleeve more and you see his emotion more. And until maybe Birdman, again, he went to a comedy, we can call it a comedy, because, you know, to him, a movie's where you're having a good time or a waste of time. You know, you have to be feeling something. You have to feel anger. You have to feel, you know, despair. And Soderbergh is more of a cool cat. I mean, he's very quiet and doesn't really talk a lot, but is very sure of himself, you know, and, and shoots a lot less. He has a pretty good idea of what he wants, and he'll, once he gets it, he's done. I mean, there were, especially on the, like, the Ocean's Eleven movie, you know, there was days we got 500 feet of film. He got what he wanted and he was done. Well, that's not a small movie. I mean, we had a nice, big, long schedule, but the only day we got a lot of film was the day they had all 11 characters in the same room and they had to shoot coverage on all of them. That was the day we got, I don't know, 30,000 feet. Uh, I think in film back then days, because we were still getting film and winding it, and, and uh, even though we cut it on the Avid, we were still sinking dailies on film. But uh, they definitely worked differently, the two of them. But, I, you know, both talented in their own way. A quick definition here. The first assembly is the first cut of the film, usually done when it just wraps production. It's a chance for the filmmakers to see the basics of what they captured. Douglas Christ adores this part of the process because it gives him the opportunity to show the director how he initially sees the film. My biggest influence initially is the assembly because I'm assembling the movie and they have no input. So I cut the film together and by the time they show up I've got a cut of the movie. Now it's usually too long and it's usually boring and it's usually, you know, and it's it's got all kind of problems and story things don't make sense. And then I give the director his moment where I, I don't say anything hardly. I'm like, okay, we're gonna work the next couple weeks and I wanna hear everything you wanna do. I'll even tell a director what I love to do, and I did this with Harmony too, is we won't watch the whole movie when they come in for the first time. This is what I prefer and this is what I always try to talk them into. They'll come in and I'll say, let's watch 20 minutes. You tell me what you hate about this 20 minutes, what I got completely wrong, what performance I put in that you absolutely hate, or this or that, or, or you know, you want to try some music, and then let me work on that 20 minutes, and then tomorrow we'll watch the next 20 minutes, or whatever, and then you will do the same thing. And then like a week or so, now we'll watch the whole movie. At least then they've put their stamp on it a little bit. And then we will go through it again and I'll work on their cut. But then after we're in that stage, after you know a few weeks where I've let them just tell me what they want, I try to get my perspective of saying, okay, now this is what I think, or this is what this is working, and then we'll watch the movie with other people. And, we'll, and then it becomes a back and forth, hopefully. But I always usually take my feed from the director as much as possible. When working on Creed, a continuation of the Rocky saga, Michael and Claudia had to do a tremendous amount of work before a frame of the movie was even shot. In a way, much of their first assembly occurred prior to the first day of filming. We want to make this movie for everybody, so people who've never seen a Rocky movie before in their life can watch this, pick it up, 
not misbeat, you know. But there was some previs work, pre-visualization. A lot of uh, bigger movies do it. Uh, Marvel does it like crazy, like j just for money and stuff like that. Like they plan every single shot as much as they possibly can. So before Creed even shot, they had Claudia cut together storyboards and animatics from the final fight so Ryan and the producers can see like, okay, this is gonna work out if we cover it, you know, this way. And then I had the task, two tasks, one of which was the hardest thing I've ever done as an editor. But it was cool because Michael B. Jordan came over to my house when we watched boxing. But uh, <laughs> Ryan had me break down the script and find every single line of action, boxing action, find it on the internet, real boxing fights, download that stuff and cut it all together into a 20 minute series. It's like editing something where you don't even know if the footage actually exists. So it was terrible. So that, that was sort of the realistic aspect that Ryan always goes for. You know, the, this real, the punches feel like they hurt. You know what I mean? Like, and Ryan was always like, if the punch doesn't look like it hits, Take it out of the movie. I don't care if I wrote it, I don't care if I love it, like take it out if it, if it doesn't feel real. The other thing they had me do, that Ryan had me do was basically think of every single fight of every single movie I could ever think of and basically cut together these sequences of every fight from every movie, like everything from Play It to the Bone, that Woody Harrelson boxing movie, to Girl Fight, to you know, all the Rockies. So, so we, we, we saw what it would, now if you go back and watch the Rocky fights, they're terrible boxing. <laughs> um, yeah. they're, they're, they're this far away, because, uh, yeah, you know, they're, 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 so. Special effects weren't that good. As someone who grew up around Philadelphia, I do not condone any negativity against Mr. Balboa. But as Claudia and Michael pointed out, special effects have advanced so much since the 70s and helped make Creed's punches land, both figuratively and literally. Now VFX, I don't tell a lot of people this, but VFX did some amazing stuff. They could actually make punches hit if they didn't hit. And so hold their face. And they would ripple the face and put like sweat coming <laughs> off and blood coming out and stuff like that. So yeah. so if we had a sequence we loved, there's that awesome shot that actually passed through the ropes and back in the ring and out of the ropes when they're just wailing on each other. And there was one that, that was just missed completely, but they were able to fix that to, to kind of keep that. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, when, you, when you're doing a Rocky movie, like you gotta be, I'm actually more worried now I'm doing the Dirty Dancing remake, so <laughs> I'm more terrified of, the, of all the girls that, that are texting me like, you better get this right, I'm gonna, this is my favorite movie. But uh, I'm having the time of my life. The, um, I, uh, um, you know, but what we wanted to do with, with the fights, and I, and I honestly think that this is, this is why it's so effective. I mean, obviously the setup for the fight. You care about the characters. And, and it's funny, when we first cut the fight together, we just cut the boxing. And it wasn't until we started adding the reaction shots of the mom and the girlfriend and Rocky that you actually, like, oh my God, like I'm feeling emotion for these people. It, it's, it's what the other people who care about this character are feeling just as much, if not more, than, than that guy. So uh, the thing with the fight is it's not just punching. It's an emotional journey. It's, it's Rocky coaching him. It's him, it's, it's that father-son relationship. It's, it's getting your ass kicked and then coming back and showing you a little something and then going to the depths of hell in those awesome uh, Raging Bull homage shots. And it's an emotional fight, it's an emotional journey where if you watch a lot of these other fights, it was just punch, 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 punch. Oh my God, look at that hard punch, look at this blood, look at whatever. We tried to bring as much emotion, humanity, story, you know, and it always goes back to story, montages, fast cuts, a lot of stuff happening, but there's a story. There's, Adonis is not getting it, he gets in a fight with the other dude, Rocky tells him to shut up and listen, and then he starts to get it. That's, that's the story of that montage, you know. It's really story, it's, it's always, it's going back to story and, and above the action, the, the hard hits, all that.
the Oscar-winning Birdman was made to feel like it was one continuous take. The irony is making a film look like it had no cuts actually takes a tremendous amount of cutting and special effects wizardry. I'll be a little bit more open because, you know, Alejandro didn't want a lot of the magic given away, but uh, there's been several articles contradicting coming out in Hollywood Reporter. One says there's 15-minute take in the movie, one says there's this, one says there's that. Um, edits can be done surprisingly places you never thought of before. I mean, we had the planned ones where, you know, there'd be a dark alley or a whip pan, or and the pans aren't even, you can do a, an edit when the camera's not even panning fast because you just start wiping the frame and you find an edge or whatever. And that's where a lot were done, but I mean, there's rotos that we did and different things like that. Like, one of them I'm probably the most proud of is one I came up with because as like I said, he wanted this performance and he wanted this performance and there was no, where are we going to put it? And it's the scene where Michael Keaton is on stage performing for the audience and the camera's coming around him and Ed Norton's getting drunk in the drunk. background. I'm drunk? Yes, I'm drunk. I'm supposed Dude, to be drunk. Why aren't you drunk? This is Carver. He left a piece of his liver on the table every time he wrote a fucking page. If I need to be drinking we gin... We rotoed around Michael Keaton and it's almost like a 40-second edit happening because we're changing the backgrounds to a different performance of Ed Norton. So then once Michael finishes, he steps out of frame and we've wiped completely across. So there's an edit there that wasn't planned. What it was, it's basically a split screen is the easiest way to describe it. Because it starts on Michael, but you know, as he's talking, I did it in the Avid first, where I just did an animat around him. And we figured out we could do it. Because we thought, oh, we could do the cut later when there's a whip pan. But that wasn't going to work, because then we wouldn't get the moment we wanted with Ed. You know, there's so many things you can do with the visual effects once you've figured out it's possible. I mean, there's, there's ones we all came up with. When Michael Keaton shoots himself and he falls out of frame, we switch the audience. Because the gun goes off, his arm wipes the frame, and he falls. Because Michael Keaton's best performance was his last one. But the audience had been there all night. They're tired. They're not professionals. Their best performance was take four. Not, not, you know, and that's wow. the best audience he wanted. So when he falls out of frame, there's a cut there. You know, there's 100 cuts in the film. There was no 15-minute takes. The longest takes, every, the standard day of shooting was, it would be a setup of like three to four minutes long. And that's how long the takes were. And the longest take that I think they ever shot was close to five minutes. And probably the longest take in the movie is five minutes. But most of them are way shorter and there's cuts in within those. Even in those four-minute takes, we'd put two or three edits that we didn't plan on having. I mean, there were, like I said, they had the planned spots. And we did a lot of other stuff like, you know, on every film you do speed ramps and you do dialogue replacement in people's mouths. You do all kind of stuff. But here you had to really work it because you couldn't play anybody's over the shoulder too much. And, you know, if you wanted to find, you know, somebody flubbed the line a little bit, you had to sneak the word in their mouth. Or, or we would ramp the speed up to get the pacing a little faster. There's one scene, I won't give it away, but there's a scene that, you know, it was one of the scenes we feel where the movie slowed down a lot. And I was ramping the speed up between every line of dialogue. So when somebody wasn't talking, we ramp it 30% faster and then bring it back down and still probably run their dialogue 5% faster. So we would be running ramps up and down. I never did so many speed ramps in a movie. And sometimes we actually slowed down. Sometimes we actually wanted the moment to last a little longer. And what was, I think, ingenious about Alejandro is he knew to build in some of these moments in the film where, okay, we're going to take a break here. We're, you know, it's like one of the, my favorite scenes that I didn't understand when he shot it was the corridor. And that, of course, 
we had the mobility of once, and there's actually a cut when the camera's panning over to the empty hallway. It's actually wiping, and you didn't see it. But anyway, you know, we, we, I think we slowed that footage down so it would even play slower because he knew he could go faster or slower with it until he wanted uh, Michael to step in. And, you know, and I think we're even digitally zooming in a little bit before the camera actually starts to zoom. One of the editor's many challenges is dealing with the sometimes tricky landscape of the film's final cut and potentially then having too many cooks in their kitchen. Too many cooks! But Douglas Christ never loses sight of who's the head chef. I think this is probably true for most editors, and I hope it is. I, I definitely took this edict from Stephen. Is when I'm working on a movie, I work for the director, and I don't work for anybody else. Nobody else tells me what to do or what to change or how they want it. We'll, we'll have producers in the room when, they, when the producer's allowed to come in, and they'll give their notes. And their notes, they don't give me notes separately. Their notes go to the director, and the director gives me the notes. And they fight it out. They fight out the politics. And, and if they're arguing about saying, I'll usually agree. Now, when I say I work for my director, I will agree with my director if I agree with him. If I don't, I will say I will take the producer's side if I agree with the producer on something. But I, I try to stay out of that political nonsense that'll happen. And those choices that are made, I would say as a director, you should get final cut as quickly as you can in your career and you hold on to it and you never give it up. I mean, Harmony, when I was doing, shooting Spring Breakers, the producers came to him and said they wanted, they want to have final cut. And he says, you can give me $10 million right now, you're not getting it. That's, that's his standpoint. And he's, he's had final cut from the day he started and he won't ever give it up. And Soderbergh has final edit. Or if you're gonna hopefully align yourself with a producer that's strong and someone you trust immensely, they might have final cut over you on your first couple movies, but they'll have your back. And that's, you know, and I know George Clooney's first movie, he didn't have final cut, but Soderbergh did. And Soderbergh was a producer on it. So and they're, they're as tight as they get, those two guys. So that's the way you start out before you get your final edit. For Michael and Claudia on Creed, the path to the film's final cut was made even more complicated since one of the producers was Rocky Balboa himself. We had to fight until the last minute because the studio wanted Adonis to win. And we strongly believed that he had to lose because he wins something much more than that, which was the humanity, which was more important than him being a, a winner, you know. And then we had discussions. Stallone was a big help for us because he had a lot of uh, weight on that movie. He's responsible for the whole series. And that was one point that he actually went to the other side and we were like, oh, we're done. Oh my God. It's it's <laughs> and he came yeah. in and he's like, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we have no time, we have no time, we're doing it. And, and Ryan was out of the room and I'm, I'm just sitting there. He like, was sitting on the- Claudia gets up and leaves. And I look at him like, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and he's like, he's yeah, and, and then he goes, he goes, he goes, where's Ryan? I don't want to say this twice. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And I like slowly turn around and and then Ryan came in and kind of kind of talked him down a little bit, and um, and he totally changed his idea. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing about Sly is that is that he he listens and he listens to us. Like he didn't have to listen. He could come in, do this, do that, change this. But you know, he respected Ryan so much 
Because at the beginning when I said, look, I know you're a director, I know you're a producer, just let me direct. Like, you're a great actor, do what you do, let me worry about everything else. But he would come in and, and he, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And would come in with very specific notes, and, but also like on this time code, on this, this scene, this take, this frame, like, I really like the delivery here, I really like this reaction here. And he would come with all that stuff. And I, I've never seen a producer do that, let alone one of the biggest icons in the history of movies. And good um, notes, like yeah, he was really not good a crazy producer. And, and it, yeah, because if we, a lot of other producers are like, well, you know, we don't think the character would really do that and story, whatever. A lot of other producers would be like, I don't care, do it. Because I said so, he he would actually stop and think, and if he agreed with this, he would. And a lot of times he He's, did. He would say, you know, yeah, you're right. Let's let's reasonable. keep it. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, so, he, he cared. He really cared, and he knew what he was doing. He was not doing that for for ego, because sometimes you you see some producers that come with the money, but they have no idea what what they're talking about. But they have to have their prints. So they inject. The they inject more. Yeah, they force there. you to do things that are not good for the project. And it's it's really hard to deal with that, cause yeah, yeah we were very passionate. Half of editing yeah. is politics anyway, you know. And and then you have to uh, deal with that situation as best as you can. Yeah. And it doesn't always turn out for the best of the project. And and, and then you remember it's just a movie. Yeah. yeah. And you move on. Maybe the most magical thing about editing is how much hard work goes into a part of cinema we tend not to notice but editors are the first ones who transform what could be a mountain of footage into a cohesive story, and they provide the last rewrite of the screenplay. If you want to learn more about the invisible art of editing, Walter Murch's book In the Blink of an Eye is like an editor's Bible, and Wendy Apple's documentary The Cutting Edge shows the many amazing tricks editors have up their sleeves. We want to thank Douglas Christ, Claudia Costello, and Michael P. Schauber for speaking with our students. And thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on two Q&As. Douglas Christ was moderated and produced by Tova Leiter. Claudia Costello and Michael P. Schauver were moderated by Kelly Gardner and Josh Eiserich. To watch these interviews or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor. Edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, Sean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. This projector at the end, it's, I just don't think it's very accurate. I mean, it's an audio broadcast on a digital medium involving no film. I have an idea. Why don't we put in there an air siren from World War II because it's just as relevant or the sound of a freaking dinosaur.